Tony Hoffer's name is plastered across a number of albums dating back to the mid-90s, from acclaimed releases by Beck and Phoenix to hits by The Kooks and M83. He's remained an in-demand producer and mixer, both in the U.S. and U.K., and is regularly recruited by labels and artists alike to help with their projects. I'll be talking to Tony today about his history in the music business, how he formed relationships with some of his most recurring collaborators, what his thoughts are on gear and production, and what it's like running his own label. Hey, Tony, thanks for coming on the Soyuz podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, David. What was the first gig that you saw that really blew your mind? Um, the, the first gig that blew my mind, um, I'd seen some shows prior to this, but... The first gig that blew my mind was at a, a, a little club in L.A. that no longer exists called the Anti Club. I, I I read poetry there when I was a teenager. Okay, so so there you go. It was it was um, yeah. I mean, there was a lot of cool stuff on Melrose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think when the earthquake, when the was it ninety two or yeah, earthquake, um, I think well, yeah, a lot of clubs. I think Raji's got demolished and. Um, or, or they had to demo it, but yeah, Raji's, uh, the anti club was one of them, but, but anyway, I saw this band, uh, I was, I was 15 and I went with some friends who were 16. They had a car. So we drove from the Valley Chatsworth, drove from Chatsworth, which is a bit of a drive out to yeah. like, you know, Hollywood, Hollywood and, um, in their car, which was just super cool. And we saw this band called lions and ghosts and oh, lions and ghosts yeah. hang on man wait a minute i think i worked with one of them at nana the maybe it was the guitar player rick was it yeah rick Parker? i think wait wait was he the singer or the guitar player he sang and i believe played guitar as well i think i know who he was i think i met him but the other guy was the i think he was just a guitar player he was tall and handsome with long dark yeah. hair yeah. they're all look super cool you know yeah like lions. lions and ghosts it, and it was just so cool because it was they were doing um you know it was they were a rock band but they had a keyboard player and it was um the songs were just really cool and it it there were catchy songs but it had kind of a you know a bit of like a punk ethos to it and I was just so into it. And then it, some other band played after them. Um, and I don't remember who that was, but I remember that the music that they were playing right after Lions and Ghosts played was a band called the Meat Puppets, who just had a new album out called Up on the Sun. And they were playing some song that I thought, whoa, this just sounded so cool. And it was just, I don't know, that gig really stood out for me in that it was just seeing a band that, you know, these these guys weren't much older than me and I was kind of thinking, yeah, maybe I could, I could do that, you know? Wow. Um, and just hearing music that I hadn't been exposed to because the meat puppets, you know, weren't being played on the radio. And, you know, and at that time that was how the majority of music discovery was happening. What a different time, no? Yeah. Different times. Other than going to, you know, the local record store, the tower records or whatever, and asking, someone there like hey i like this i like this what would you recommend for me you know that was also a good how you know a music discovery happened um back in the day but but yeah it was it was it was cool it was a cool time yeah i remember the very was it the first gig i it was the first the two for the two first gigs i ever went to i can't remember which came first but it was both around the same time i think i was 14 uh, one was X and the Mau Mau's at, uh, out in the Valley at the, the country club. The Palomino? I think it was the country club. Oh. I can't, I can't remember, but anyway, it was X and the Mau Mau's. Wait, wait, and was it then, the country club in Reseda? It might've been. I mean, at that age, like, I just didn't know where anything was except, you know, I 
lived in Koreatown, but it was just on the other side of the hills. Yeah. Um, and then the other was the clash and the English beat at the Hollywood Palladium. Oh that was, that was mind blowing. Moose. Yeah. That's, those are two insane gigs. Um, I've never, I never saw X. I would have loved, you know, and then I discovered X shortly after the lions and ghosts gig. I discovered X and every, you know, everything kind of opened up. Um, they were amazing. The country club. I remembered it was on Sherman way. Uh, in Reseda, a few doors down from it was a place called Bebop Records. Do you remember Bebop? I, I remember hearing about it. I, I I never made it out there. So this was an iconic... Um, um, God, I'm forgetting the guy's name. It'll, it'll come to me, but this this amazing guy, he was an artist. He, he basically set up a shop on Sherman Way in, in the heart of the valley, kind of in a bit of a bizarre place um and he was an artist and so he would sell his art and then he had records that he would sell um you know just a few not many but you know a few bays of records like maybe six or seven bays of records it was a very small store but then at night he would have artists play or people read poetry and um so that was a few and and we we my old band played there um with beck funny enough years ago and that was a few hours down from the from the country club. I remember, I remember seeing that spot. Wow! I, I for some reason it reminded me. This is years later, but um, do you remember a store on Vermont called I think it was Mondo Video? Yeah, and yeah. So yeah. I was in there one day. I was in there one day with my friend John Tottenham, the poet, and I'm looking through some records and i see a record by magazine and i say john check it out man a magazine record like that's a rare thing to find and he looks at it and he goes i think it was about the weather and so he's like about the weather oh that's not one of their best and then there was there were only two other people in the shop a man a man and a woman and the guy says yeah, that really isn't one of the best ones. And it was Barry Adamson, the bass player for Magazine. <laughs> what? Yeah, that's those types of things make me think that the universe actually has a sense of humor. That's what was he doing there? He was just shopping. He was just in, in you the know, valley, like it's so no on Vermont, like in Los Feliz. Okay, sorry, yeah, yeah, Los, yeah. yeah, that's so random. Because back then Vermont and Los Feliz and Silver Lake. That was kind of no man's land, you know? Yeah, it was definitely a lot different than it is now. Yeah, I, it was out I, of I the was way. back recently, and yeah, it's it's a kind of a whole other whole other animal. Now it's a whole other thing, but, but I remember, because, you know, in the 80s and even early 90s, past a certain, like past Hollywood, it was a bit too far. You know, you didn't really... <laughs> a bridge ahead. too far. Yeah. <laughs> And I don't know. So it was just, there wasn't really much happening in, in Silver Lake. You didn't really hear about Silver Lake. It was just kind of sleepy. Yeah, it was, it was awesome, man. It was like uh, affordable. It was full of interesting people. There was that coffee house, the Onyx on Vermont, you know, where, where I used to, the owner used to let me play sax because they had two sides, like the coffee house side and the gallery side. And the gallery only opened like in the afternoon or at night. So he would let me in the mornings, he'd give me the key and I could go in and practice saxophone in there. And yeah, it, it, I feel bad for young people in Los Angeles now because, you know, back then you could have like a cool existence for a kind of a reasonable price, you know, like, yeah. uh, you could, you could work a normal job and have a band or, you know, um, you didn't have to be wealthy just to afford an apartment. Yeah. It's, it's, um, definitely doesn't help the art. Being, you know, no. So, so tell me, Tony, Memphis, Miami. Yeah. Did you actually live there? So I was born in Memphis. Wow. Um, and I, I lived there until I was about, I lived there for about one year, I would say. Um, my dad was going to college there at the time. 
And um, my, my parents, you know, they were very young. My mom was 20 when she had me and they were just kids. And my dad was in school and he was going to school in Memphis. And then that, that's where I was born. And then after I was, after one year, then we moved back to where they're from, where they grew up, which is Detroit. Wow. So um, where all their family was and everything. And then, so I lived in Detroit for probably until I was about three or four. And then we moved, my, my grandparents, my mom's parents moved down to Miami to get out of Detroit, basically. And um, just the weather, they were, they were just sick of Detroit, scraping ice off the windshield, you know, yeah. at, at a certain point you're like, I'm done. So they were done and they, they moved down to Miami. And so again, my parents were, were young. My mom was 23 or 24 um, and dad, you know, so, so we basically followed them down to Miami and that's, that's where I would say I grew up. That's my younger years would be in Miami. And then we moved to LA when I was a teenager. So my teenage years would be LA. And then I lived in San Francisco. What part of LA? Uh, well, Chatsworth. Okay. <laughs> that part of LA. That's funny. Okay. Yeah, deep, um, valley. deep Valley. So at some point, well, I was born in Canoga Park. I shouldn't Okay. Laugh. <laughs> I, I grew up in, I grew up in Koreatown, but I was born in, in Canoga Park. Um, earwax. Yeah. You, you went somehow from intern to staff engineer at Earwax in San Francisco. Do you want to yes. tell me a little about that? Yeah. So basically, um, I was in a band for, I don't know, six or seven years in LA and we'd kind of taken it. What was it called? We were called This Great Religion. Religion. And, um, you know, I don't know. It was kind of like a cross. What we did was a cross between uh, Wire and My Bloody Valentine meets maybe Tears for Fears because I'll say that because some of the songs they were, you know, we were trying to write catchy songs and have choruses, but the, you know, the guitar and bass and drum, you know, the textures were more akin to a lot of the post-punk stuff that we were into, like Wire and Joy Division, Cure, all that kind of stuff. Um, and My Bloody Valentine, um, the, the heaviness of it, blurriness of it. So, but yeah, we, we did that. Um, we had a good run of, you know, six or seven years and then we just kind of took a little hiatus, which I think we're still on. I'm not sure, <laughs> but you know, uh, and then I moved up to San Francisco. I wanted to get out of LA and just kind of drop into a new place. And so I, what year was that? That was 94. Um, maybe it was actually no it might have been a little bit earlier maybe it was 93 um, yeah I think it was 93 so moved up to San Francisco pestered earwax I, and I'd read something about earwax that they were in a, in a book about something called multimedia <laughs> well demystifying multimedia I still have it um, and, and basically it was talking about how um, this new thing called multimedia, which is essentially using computer technology and, and games and incorporating video and audio. And you know, now you don't even think about merging all of this stuff together. But back then it was a little, it was a little more tricky if you're talking about how computers would work with that. So um, that's that studio stood out to me. It seemed like they were doing some cool stuff. So when I got up there, I, I just pestered them for months for an internship or even just a meeting. And um, eventually I got one of the guys on the phone, a guy named Barney Jones. And he's like, yeah, come by. I'll, I'll show you the place. You know, I think he kind of felt bad for me. So I came by, he showed me the place. It looked super cool. You know, I'd never really been in a studio before. Well, actually, that's not true. I've, I've been in a bunch of studios, but I'd never been in a studio um, where I was potentially going to become a part of the studio. You know, I'd been in studios with my band previously, music, obviously, but this was kind of a different thing. And, and I really needed a job as well. So um, he's like, great. Well, there you go. 
he showed me the studio and that was it. So then I kept contacting him, you know, every six weeks or so I'd, I'd hit him back. And finally he said, Hey, look, you know, why don't you come down? And he, he gave me a shot as an intern. And so, you know, it's basically dealing with the fax machine, getting burritos, um, answering phones, like whatever. That was, that was pretty much it for no pay, but I could go in at night and I had access to the studios. And so I would go in and just kind of figure it out, you know, figure out how a patch bay works, figure out how to, what happens if you run a whole mix into, um, outboard gear, like an even tight H3000 and try all the different settings and, you know, basically break things and put them back together. And, and I feel like that, that time then was, um, a big part of, I, I suppose, what was to come next. And I was doing a lot of that on my own already, you know, but this studio had much better equipment than what I had in my home studio. Let's uh, just for a moment talk about the Eventide H3000 because um, that's, it for me, an amazing piece of gear. Like, And I'm someone who's never been into gear. Beck actually said, when when I started Soyuz, he said, David, if you asked me who the last person on earth to start a gear company would be, I would have said you. And it's true. I'm not I'm not like a big gear guy. But um, yeah, that H3000 or the Eventide, uh, the H3000, the very first uh, Brazzaville album I made, the producer, this guy, Michael Rosan, oh. used it. Hold up. Was he a drummer? Yeah. Dude. From Canada. Yes. Yeah. French Canadian. Yes. Wow. Me and Justin auditioned him as a drummer years, like in, in 80, 88 or 89, we auditioned him uh, for, a, for a drummer. And he had, I remember he had this insane electronic kit, like a Simmons kit. And um, we showed his photos of back maybe when he had that. And he looked amazing and um, he was super cool. That's so funny. I think I remember. Well, it's, that, it's, he's an incredible guy. Like when I decided to start Brazzaville and I was looking for a place to record, I asked around for different studios. And uh, I think it was this guy, Michael Whitmore at the Onyx, who said, you might want to try this guy, Michael Rosan. I said, okay. So I had gone to a couple studios and, you know, they were pretty typical and, so I go out to this house out in North Hollywood and yeah. I knock on the door and this guy answers wearing purple silk pajamas, combat boots, smoking a clove cigarette with like dreadlocks and a little like Satan mustache, you know, beard combination. He's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Come on in. I'm like, this is, this is the guy, yeah. this is where I wanted to record. That is awesome. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, he used the Eventide a lot. Yeah. And um, and also I know Bowie. I think it was on. Um, I don't know if it was Low or Heroes, but I mean, I, I know that I guess it was Tony Visconti maybe that that used the Eventide a lot, especially on that snare sound. I think it was on Low, and um, it, not, it wouldn't have been an H three thousand, I guess, but it was some some Eventide. Yeah, I bought one just to try to get that snare sound. <laughs> They're incredible. So we were at Earwax, and you were breaking things and putting them back together as an intern. And yeah. somehow you ended up becoming the staff engineer. How did that happen? Did you have to poison somebody? or No, I mean, you know what? Basically, all it was was my enthusiasm to be there for no um, money. I wasn't getting paid as you know as an intern. I think my enthusiasm and I showed up yeah. and anything they needed, you know, I was, I was there, like whatever they needed, I would stay extra hour. I, you know, I would stay after hours. I only had to be there, let's say until, I don't know, maybe five o'clock or whatever. And, but I'd stay till 10. Basically, I basically stay until, you know, they like time, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here, you know? Right. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and and so I think they saw my enthusiasm, and they said, "Let's let's give him a shot." And I remember, and you know, and I had a, a a horrible office job as well at the time, just just to make ends meet. And I was also working on my own music 
thinking that, you know, maybe I'll be kind of like a solo artist. I'm still writing songs and, and recording on my own. And, um, I had a, a day job in an office that was just dreadful. And I knew, you know, I've got to cause something to click, you know, got to kind of create some luck to happen. And sure enough, there was something that came up. There was a project that came in to Earwax where they needed someone. Everybody was kind of busy with things and they, they needed someone to sort of be involved with this particular project and look after the project for them. And the guy um, said, would you be interested in doing this? And I said, without hesitation, yes. And I was very nervous because I had money coming in from this, you know, my minimum wage office job. So I was very nervous to lose that. And I said, yes. And sure enough, I felt like I was falling backwards into an abyss. You know, I'm going to say yes, and it's going to be good. Sure enough, the gig falls through. It got canceled and I'd quit my job. Yeah. And um, as these things go, you know, but, um, but something else came in a couple of weeks after that. You know, shortly after that, which ended up working out great. And I was able to really, you know, they let me do that one and I was able to prove myself had I had, you know, and, and I think it was good making that decision that at this point I was seriously all in, I had burnt the ships, you know, and I'm, I'm all in at that point. So, um, and, and basically from that point, that's, I've, I've just done music. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, it's so inspiring. I mean, um, I think a couple of things that you said are really important, uh, for young people to hear, you know, one of them is, um, go the extra mile for free, you know, like, uh, if you're, if you're doing something that you perceive as being kind of part of your dream, um, because the short term money is nothing compared to what things can lead to. You know, and then the other is that leap of faith. Like I, I'm a big believer that like often you have to let one door close before the other one will open. And that time in between in the hall is it can be terrifying, but there's almost no other way to do it. You know? Yeah. You, you sometimes just have to commit and go all in. I don't know. And yeah. So l let's talk a little bit about Beck. Because that's where you and I met. Uh, we met in the like Midnight Vulture days. Uh, I think it was. Uh, yeah. Or maybe it was a little bit before that. It was before, yeah, it was the making, because we were making Midnight Vultures. Um, so it would have been, we probably met in 98, 99. Something like that, yeah. And it, something I didn't know was, was it that JMJ gave back a track of your music? Is that how... You guys ended up working together. Yeah. So basically, um, I did. I knew Beck from just around the scene, like back, you know, back before um, he got signed and and everything kicked off for him. We would my band and and Beck like we would play shows together, and we were kind of in this scene that um, with other bands, you know. Uh, band called failure um stanford prison experiments um there were just kind of a bunch of bands that were not doing what was popular at the time <laughs> meaning like hair metal stuff so we were <laughs> so we were kind of the alternate we were doing the alternate to that we were all doing alternative music there wasn't really a name for it back then now we would just call it alternative but um without knowing it, we were just doing our own thing. And, and so we would all do shows together and we, you know, so I knew Beck from that and, uh, and we hung out a bit and, um, back in those days. And then Justin, Justin Mel Johnson, who was the bass player, uh, with me, uh, in my band, this great religion, he ended up years later playing bass for Beck, I uh. think on the early Odelay tours. I'm yeah, yeah and, he was he was already there in the band when I joined in 97. Yeah. So 
It was yeah. a during Odile, exactly. Yeah. So, um, and so in during that time, I was, you know, we would, Justin and I, we would work on music together because we were still trying to figure out what, you know, maybe we can, maybe it wouldn't be the band. Maybe we would make music as a new thing or, you know, so we would still collaborate. And I was also working on my own stuff. And I'd um, sent Justin some stuff for him to play on. Some crazy, um, I remember there was some stuff I was doing. It was like very sort of hyper fast bossa nova stuff with crazy drum filtering and it was you know and it was it was done with my basically my five i had five samplers and so it was all done with that and it was just it was in, it sounded insane and um and it was kind of it was kind of cool you know and and i think he had played some stuff for beck of like hey just check out what tony's doing and this is right around the time where beck was maybe starting to think about midnight vultures maybe he'd already kind of started it a little bit but um but yeah basically he's like yeah so you know tony if you if you want to come down to la i was in san francisco at the time if you want to come down let's just work on some stuff together some tunes you know and i'm like yeah i'll be right there so i drove down with a couple crates of records and um because i was doing a lot of sampling at the time beck obviously was doing lots of sampling and you know found something really cool on a bony m record and got something going pretty fast. And, and he was like, man, this sounds cool. Can you come back tomorrow? I'll write the lyrics. We'll cut the vocals tomorrow afternoon. So I come back the next day, cut the vocals really fast. Which um, song was it? It was a song that never came out. Um, we never really, I don't, I'm not even sure, we never really totally finished it. Um, I think it was called... Um, God, I can't remember, but it, it was, it was, um, it was never released, and I don't think we even really finished it. We never really came back to it after we got into actually working together officially. But um, it was a sample. It was a Boney M sample of the song called "Night Flight to Venus." That has this crazy flanged out drum fill, and and I grabbed that little bit of that, and then we kind of built something around that. I'd love to hear it now. Uh, yeah, it must be I would too. Some hard drive somewhere, but um, but it was cool, and and so I came back the next day. We cut vocals in I don't know an hour. Uh, he's super fast, and then he's like, "Well, it's, it's two o'clock. You want to do another something else? Find another thing, sample, you know, get something going, build it up, and, and that's kind of how that evolved, you know, and my my involvement with Midnight Vultures." This episode is brought to you by Soyuz Microphones. At Soyuz, we make microphones the old-fashioned way. Everything from R&D, machining, assembly, and testing are done in-house by our own team of specialists. Our mics are known for having the Soyuz sound. Lows that are deep but not boomy, mids that are present but never boxy, and highs that are open and airy without sounding harsh. Soyuz mics have become known as true modern classics. Click the link in the description for more information or to find a dealer near you. I remember there was a track he, he called me in to play on once around that, I think it was right around that time, called Midnight Vultures. Yeah. And it was uh, that guy, James Gadsden, was playing the drums. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, I can't remember what that sounded like, but yeah. It, it, sounds... was, a, it was a pretty cool track. Um, yeah, well, anyway, that was, a, that was, a, that was a, a super interesting time. That was one of my next questions was about your five samplers. And uh, I think it was like Roland Emu... Emu Kurtzweil, was that the two emus? Yeah, right. Two emus, a Kurtzweil, a Roland, and we're we're missing one. So two emus, Roland S five fifty, Kurtzweil K two thousand, um, and an SB twelve hundred. Yeah, I you you mixed a song for Brazzaville once uh, back in the day called Genoa, and I remember that you used this amazing delay on the piano yeah uh, and i think somehow it picked up a little bit of an fm radio signal or something in it there was some some little thing but there was kind of no way to get rid of it you know it was it, and and it almost added to it so it it 
it ended up being a great thing. What was that? It was some sort of an analog delay yeah. or digital delay. I can't remember. It was an analog delay. It was, it was um, my multivox delay. I forgot the model of it, but it's, um, I still use it all the time. It, it doesn't have a very long delay time at the most 300 milliseconds at best, but, then, but it's just awesome. It has such a vibe. It's, oh, it's yeah. super cool. Um, yeah, it's funny. I did that in, um, yeah, everybody should check that, that, that song. That's a beautiful song. It's a really cool song. Uh, <laughs> Thanks. Brazzaville, Genoa. Check that yes, out. Yes. Yes. It's actually oddly popular in China. That's, I get, I get messages from people, but yeah, that, that, well, we can also talk about Mike Boido. I mean, Mike, Mike Boido is just, uh, He's kind of impossible to describe if you've never met him, but he's a musical genius. Uh, and Beck used to tell me about like when Boido actually played in the band and how it was just impossible to work with him because he he was so, you know, yeah. he'd, he'd have to start the, I think it was Where It's At, where he started. And, you know, Beck would look over and he, Boido had this portable juicer, like, you know, where he could like make juice and... Uh, <laughs> he'd be doing that instead of playing the song. A sandwich. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I mean, like you can't make that shit up. It's no, he, he played with Brazzaville and literally, uh, one, one day we were rehearsing and I looked over and he was asleep on the sofa with his keyboard on his lap. But as soon as the song started, his finger, you know, he started to play along eyes closed, but you know, so yeah, he was the, yeah, and if if I can find anything to link to uh, that's kind of Boido specific, I'll I'll put that in the in the notes as well in the comments. That, um, I remember that that was actually mixed on a Mackie. Um, oh, I forgot the not a sixteen oh eight. It was twenty twenty four oh eight. It was like it was a twenty four channel Mackie desk. That's what I had. That's what I was doing all my stuff on. And um, I had a ton of outboard pedals, and it sounded pretty, you know. It sounded great. You did it really fast, too. I think I was there with you when you mixed it, and uh, you ripped right through it. Like, uh, it's, it's, it's one of the better mixes I think I've ever had on a Brazzaville track. Yeah, good old Mackie, you know. Yeah. All right. I enjoyed that, that little thing. Phoenix. Yeah alphabetical oh wait, wait wait sorry let me back up for a second um because there was something else i wanted to ask you about because you worked with air on uh Ten hertz legend yeah it was that through beck that you ended up meeting air or working with oh, them that's it's well i'd already worked on the beck album and i think it had maybe come out midnight vultures i think it had already it had just come out and um kind of going back to the earwax days, I was basically anyone that wanted to work on something. I just wanted to work on music, quick, cool stuff. And so just constantly looking for cool and fun projects and cool and fun people to work with. And um, so my friend, our, our friend, our mutual friend, Roger Manning, and um, uh and our other mutual friend, Jason Faulkner, and um, and this and Brian Reitzel. I don't know if you know Brian. Peripherally, yeah. So Brian was the was a, a drummer. He was in a band called Red Cross. Um, oh yeah, years oh, before. God. But um, one of the drummers. But um, so Brian, Roger, and Jason were doing a an album of a of a fake soundtrack, and they wanted it to kind of have it sound like a seventies. Um, very retro and authentic soundtrack. So they asked me, like, "Hey, man, would you be down to record? You know, we're going to be recording Brian's drums at this studio, um, and there's all these other instruments we need to record, and then we need it mixed. Would you know? Would you be down to do that? And we have no money. I'm like, hell yeah, it sounds like fun. That's it's perfect. Yeah, you know. Um, so so I did it. And it was, we had a great time. I got to work on a Trident A range, which I'd never 
worked on before. So that was really cool to, you know, I'm just with all this, I'm just gaining more and more experience, you know, miking drums up in unusual ways, you know, uh, they weren't paying me. So I was able to kind of try some things out, you know, and, um, and experiment a little bit and they were down with that. And, and it came out really cool. It's this thing called Logan's Sanctuary. I, I don't think was it's it on ever released. It was released. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if it's on Spotify or not, but it would definitely be on YouTube. And it's, I'll, I'll, I'll link to it. Yeah. It's, it's cool. It, it's super cool. And, you know, we, we did it all super fast. And Brian, the drummer, ended up just after that playing drums for, for Air, French band Air. And Brian played this album that he did to the, to the guys, to JB and Nico. And he said, hey, check out this thing that me and my friends did. Just FYI. And so they listened to it and they're like, oh, shit, these drums sound so cool. This, this whole thing sound, sounds super cool. Who did it? And it's like, oh, my guy, my buddy, Tony Hoffer. So next thing you know, I'm on a plane to Paris. To I hate when that happens. Like, you know what I mean? And um, <laughs> it was, it was, um, I would have never expected that, you know, just this little thing that for no money. So, um, and then that ended up being, you know, I, I co-produced, I did co-production and mixed that album with them and, um, which came out really great. You know, I'm really proud of that album. And that was a big thing for me because it put me in that region being close to the region, meaning the UK and France. And, um, you know, when I was there working with air Phoenix had just released their first album and, um, uh, called United. And I met them. We saw them play at a really cool show. Um, when Aaron and I went to London to master the album, 10,000 Hertz legend, Phoenix were also playing Jules Holland. So we went to the, on the Jules Holland show, just in the audience to see their buddies, Phoenix play on TV. And so we got to hang out a little bit and, you know, um, and then a few years later, when it came time to, um, do their second album, they reached out to me and, you know, and by that point I had already done a few things for the, for the label, um, which was source and Virgin. Um, and, and Philippe Askely, who is kind of the, um, the, the, the guy leading all of that, he, he and I did a lot of projects together, um, over the years. Very cool. He he had signed Phoenix and, you know, a number of other really, and air and a bunch of, a number of other really cool artists. Let's move on to the kooks. Yeah. How'd you meet them? So I met them through Philippe Ascoli. Ah. So um, Philippe was then at that point, he was the, the MD of Virgin Records, Virgin UK, or the, he was the head of Virgin. And um, he's like, Tony, I've got this band I signed called The Kooks. They've been a band for not very long, a matter of months. They got signed on basically two or three songs. Um, so they didn't really have, they didn't really have many songs, you know, it was very unusual situation, but there was just something there that was cool. And he sent me some stuff and yeah, I loved it. I loved the, the demos of the two or three songs. They sound great. Count me in. So, um, they had tried doing some recordings with some other people in, in London and, um, and things just, it didn't quite work out. Um, and then I think they, that's when Philippe actually reached out to me. Um, there was also, and Nick Burgess was the other A&R involved who had recommended me for that project because I've worked with both of them on a previous project. Um, the band was called The Thrills and that record did very well. Mm. Um, so they felt, okay, let's call Tony. He'll be, did great with The Thrills. He'll get the kooks. He'll understand what needs to be done with them to get the best of the best. And it'll be great. And so, yeah, then I went out to the UK to, to work with the kooks on their first album. Wow. Great. Uh, 
Shall we move on to M83? Yeah, M83. I'd been a fan of M83s for years, you know, and um, had bought all their CDs and, you know. Um, and then Justin, Melville Johnson, bass player, uh, my whole band and music collaborator for many years, he was starting to get into production. Uh, in addition to playing bass, he was wanted to expand into production. And um, M83 was, um, I think he had done a couple things before that, but that was one of his um, very early productions. And he asked if I'd be interested in mixing it. And I'm like, oh, absolutely. You know, I love working with Justin and I'm a big fan of M83. So this is perfect. So that's, that's pretty much how that came about. And it was, it was a double album. It was 20 odd songs. Um, and what was the name of the album? Hurry Up, We're Dreaming. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, Midnight City was kind of the, 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 the most popular song, I guess, or, you know, Midnight City. Yeah. Um, but, but many of them have done quite well. Um, yeah. And, and it was received very well. You know, it was, it kind of, that, that album is a beautiful album it, and it really expanded the artist's career, you know, he, which, which I love when that happens. And, um, and it's an album that, you know, even I'll, I'll, I'll put on from time to time and just go back to and and i i kind of will remember things that i had forgotten about that were in there that you know uh, that we we worked on in there but it it was a double album i think we did it in about a week and a half or two weeks it was it was very quick and um a lot of tracks a lot a lot of stuff to wrangle but but you know we did it and, and it uh, came out great i feel like it's funny because I think it must have been right around that time. Um, I saw a post from Justin on Facebook, basically saying, uh, "I've you know I've started my own. I have my own studio now. I want a a, a, a primary vocal mic. I can't afford a vintage U forty seven. What should I get?" And so all these people start suggesting different things, and a few people mentioned Soyuz, and I wrote to Justin. I was like. Justin, it's that's my company. Um, I'll get you a deal, you know. And he was like, "What?" Like the same same reaction. Like because I mean, out of in the whole Beck band, I think I was the only one that I had like a sax and a guitar. Didn't know Pro Tools from a hole in the wall, you know. And um, he's like, "That's your company." I said, "Yeah." And he he ended up getting a a zero one seven tube from us that's awesome yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i mean i'm just thinking that because i'm thinking back to yeah i mean you had a sax you had an acoustic guitar that you'd travel around with yeah and a little one and it actually was from barcelona it was we were on tour here in barcelona somehow i ended up in a instrument shop on the Ramblas, which is it's not there anymore and I bought this little mini guitar that just played sharp as hell going up the neck. It was a nylon string guitar. And I asked Smokey, because I was like a, jo a George Ben fanatic, you know, and I, I asked Smokey, can you show me some chords, man, Smokey Hormel? And so he showed me how to play, you know, some basic stuff on the guitar. And uh, yeah, that was it. I had my guitar, my sax. What more did I need? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's awesome. I mean, that's the thing, you know, you just... You just, you just never know and something will interest you. And then you, you go in a new thing, new direction. And little did I know I'd end up living here, you know, for the past yeah. 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> um, you've said that you're a big brush stroke person in terms of production and mixing. And is that, is that why you prefer broad EQs from Neve and API over like surgical SSL ones? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like treble mid bass. If I could have loudness, like on an old stereo, you know, you've got your treble mid bass and that loudness button that just made everything sound really good. 
that's that's what I like. I, I'm not I'm not um, I'm not a real tweaky person. Obviously, sometimes I have to to do that to fix something or get something to you know to, to fix some problem. You have to, of course, but um, you know I kind of learned early on that sometimes just turning you know if you want somebody to come forward you don't need to start doing crazy eq sometimes just turning the volume up turn it up yeah and um and and just wider eqs to me they sound it sounds better when i have a wider shape eq um versus something that's much narrower it sounds it's to me it just sounds more um tweezy and it, it just doesn't sound right to me. So that's, that's kind of what I've always done. I don't know. I, I, I yeah, tend that makes to, sense. Yeah. I mean, and, and I tend to use those EQs when I'm recording and mixing. I, I tend to stick with those types of EQs and shape things that way. Um, I've also heard it said that, uh, you, well, this is a quote. I'm always trying to recreate the sound of a sequential circuit's drum tracks. That's all I'm trying to do with acoustic drums. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Does it's, it have anything to do with building a tent around the drums? Yeah, it does. Um, the this, this is sequential circuit's drum tracks, drum machine, um, the, the snare and the kick. The kick and the snare um, are just awesome and it's similar to a lin or a dmx you know they're it's all kind of different shades of a of a similar thing i'm I'm just a big fan of the drum tracks and um and and actually in fact the on the phoenix album that i did alphabetical the the majority of the drum sounds there um the, the kick definitely the kick and at least 70 percent of the snare sounds are my drum tracks, kicks and snares. So, you know, they may have been pitched up or pitched down a certain way to to fit the what we needed for the song, but but that is, you know, like that is that. That is the drum tracks. Uh, and then we had a drummer come in and play hi hat on top of on top of that. Oh, very cool. And Phil's Tom, you know, Tom's and, and that sort of thing. But um but yeah, but I, I found in recording drums, I can I, and I'm a big fan of dry drums, not roomy drums. But sometimes you do need roomy drums, depending on what you're working on. Um, so I'll set up a tent with just blankets, packing blankets. And um, and some of them have been pretty elaborate, almost like rooms, you know. And um, we'll, we'll have it to where there is no outside room coming into any of the mics. So it's just a super beautiful dry sound but then i'll throw room mics on the other side of the tent so we'll have room mics that are getting a room sound so i can either have bone dry or full-on room with just a matter of tweaking the faders and, and they pick up enough from outside yeah. the tent. Uh -huh. oh yeah 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 and it, and it sounds great so i've done that for for forever for years do you ever do you ever put anything over the snare like a t-shirt or yeah yeah usually everything everything is pretty um treated the sure snare the toms yeah we'll use like thin towels lots of tape um um you know yeah what what you know phones Whatever, to, whatever we can put on there just to kind of stop any ringing. And do you, do you like close miking or do you, what's your, do you have a preferred way of miking drums? Um, so these days, you know, um, and for many years, I'll put close mics on everything because if you're in a studio and you've got the mics, then it, it only makes sense to do that. So, and I, and I like having everything ready to go. So I'll put close mics on everything, um, on the kick, usually one mic inside, like a 47 fed or something. And, uh, on the snare, 
two mics, top and bottom, toms, you know, close mics. Um, I'll place overheads, you know, we'll, we'll place overheads, stereo overheads, which rarely get used, but they're interesting. Rare. Um, I'll also do a mono overhead of a different flavor, different mic that's treated differently, compressed, maybe distorted a little bit. What kind um, of mic would you use for the mono overhead? Just out of curiosity. Like a Coles. Oh, like a ribbon. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then right in front of the kit, which ends up being the main part of the sound uh, 90% of the time, I, I use what's called, I call it the kit mic. And it's basically, um, I've had this mic for years. It's a, a Shure VP88. Um, which is a stereo mic. And I basically point it, I'll have the drummer play and I just kind of find a good place in the room where it sounds good, kind of in front of the kit. I'll you know, walk very close to it and then kind of walk back and you know, maybe about four or five feet away. Sounds good. Drums have always sounded good to me standing right in front of the kit. So I put that stereo mic right there. Inside the, the tent. Yeah, inside the tent, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so that will end up being the main part of the sound. And then I'll blend in kick, snare, toms will need to be there. You, you need mics usually on the toms. And, um, you know, and then sometimes we'll throw a couple other just fun mics that are mangled just to see if we can get something interesting to happen. And I remember actually, I think we, you and I had a conversation uh years ago where you were telling me about phase and when you're like listening back to drums and you're flipping the phase and stuff like making sure that all the mics are in phase yeah do it's you just flip it or do you how do you how do you do that do you start with one one particular mic usually yeah usually it would be you know knowing that the kit mic is going to be the main you start with that uh-huh so the, the, the kit mic and then how everything relates to that and that makes sense uh-huh. yeah but you know i'll kind of just check out the different mics and just see how everything's sounding because every song is going to be different it's going to have a different treatment you know sure uh, some songs it might just be that one coals that one mono overhead uh-huh. with a little bit of kick and you know so um so each song, I'm able to have the drum presentation be drastically different from one song to the next by having that set up and having everything ready to go. Uh, um, and, you know, you, you tweak compression and EQ and, you know, for each song and, you know, you tweak as you go. But, but in terms of the mics, like everything's for the most part there. We have everything that we would need. Um, but yeah, you've got to definitely check phase without a doubt. It's one of the most fundamental and important things um to get your song to sound right because if you don't get it right with the drums then the bass guitar that you do or the synth bass you're not going to have a good sense of how much low end is is actually there and it's just not going to stack up right and then it's going to make it trickier to mix it's not going to it's not going to come together as quickly when you get into mix mode yeah but um but yeah, so I'm checking phase, you know, in, in recording, checking phase all the way through. And then when I get to mixing, I'll check it again. Oh, yeah. So I, I wanted to ask you about like signature sounds, signature things. If there's anything that you carry from record to record, I mean, one thing might be that delay you were talking about, uh, drum tents. Is there is there anything that you've discovered in your journey as a producer and a mixer I guess more as a producer that that you find yourself going back to like a a, a tool in your bag of tricks that you that you like. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I mean, there's there's probably a lot of things um, that and and a lot of them are might be actual things that I, to process audio, but some of them are also concepts that will always apply. Um, one concept being the tent kit mic um i like to work fast because i feel it gives it it kind of builds in perspective to the project so 
Um, in some ways, I can, I don't know. And I also feel a lot of cool things happen when you work fast, when you don't just get so deep into some little thing and then go down the rabbit hole and then you're, you know, you're wasting all of your time is just ticking away. You and lose perspective. Lose perspective and you kind of lose something like a fresh excitement, you know, that was there early in the, in the very beginning of the song. I've heard that a felonious monk uh, wouldn't do more than two takes. Like he wouldn't let anyone do more than two takes because he said be, uh, the first take is going to have the most energy and, and creative energy. And the second take, maybe beyond that, it's lost. And I, th- I don't remember what recording it is exactly, but Coleman Hawkins comes in earlier. There's a mistake. There's like a clear mistake. Yeah. And he's, no, keep it. He he left it. Yeah, he yeah. left it. And I think it's so funny because something that I've been thinking a lot about lately is how back in the day before digital recording, people used their ears during the recording process. That was the, the way that you judged what was going on. Oh. And with digital recording, you know, you might go, oh God, that hi-hat's really rushing, but it wouldn't bother you if you were just hearing it, but seeing it visually, like not sort of lining up to the grid. So people are kind of listening with their eyes and yet you're creating a product that's going to be, or, you know, an end result that's going to be experienced with your ears. So it. Yeah. um, It's weird. It's weird. You know, and I think um, a lot of these things that I carry with me, I actually learned, you know, working with Beck on midnight vultures and, and a little bit on Guero, I learned a lot kind of speaking to what you're saying about letting things go. I I'll definitely keep mistakes or I'll keep if things initially are a little rickety, you know, the feel is a little, it's on the verge of falling apart, especially with that kooks album. You know, a lot of those songs, there's no click. And, um, and I was trying to find the takes that, just had that were the most wild about to fall apart kind of takes when they started playing the song too much things would straighten out a little bit and and then maybe we would just take a break or go on to something else and go back and then just give that 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 vibe you know and um and i remember you know early on working with beck um he was all about just keep it greasy one or two takes there'd be clearly mistakes there or whatever mistakes in the sense of something maybe rushed a little bit but so yeah it's easy to fix or you could leave it and then i think with you know if you kind of analyze back music um especially back in in that that era um the the, the way it, it works so well because he had such a solid foundation with the rhythm section, which allowed him to play his guitar. He's an amazing guitar player, by the way. People don't really talk about that much, but um, I don't think he knows any scales. Maybe he does, but he just always knows. He just has a feel for it. He knows where to go. And um, it's, uh, it's really remarkable watching him play like you know right right next to you and kind of find his way through a part um and you know he'd kind of just figure it out with a few little mistakes it's like okay good next next thing let's go and like all right cool we're keeping all right good let's yeah i mean and the thing is yeah it is cool and it's fine you know and so sometimes i'll i'll work with people and i'll be building up this track and it's sounding a little rough, you know, and and I'm, I had to tell him like, look, trust me, just let's keep let's keep it going, let's fill it in. It's too bare right now. Let's get the other things on there, and then it sounds really cool. You know, when you start getting other instruments on there, and then the vocals get on there, it actually sounds really cool, and it sounds different than everything else. It sounds a lot. Yeah, and in the age of AI and the age of you know software that can like quantize your drums for you and all that kind of stuff i think that people probably appreciate some humanity they appreciate uh 
something that isn't perfect um in the same way that like we we have this product at Soyuz called the launcher and the launcher was meant to boost the gain of like you know sm7bs and ribbon mics things that don't have much gain but unlike the other booster boxes around i i wanted to make it so that it wasn't transparent gain so it 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 did a little something to it you know like like an old mixing board would uh and it took like two years to develop it to make it sound kind of how i was imagining but people love it they love it they it's clean is easy perfect is easy finding the magic in a track is is what's what's tricky i mean the majority of my time is spent making things not sound clean you have to go to great lengths to make stuff sound um gritty and you know but not sat not distorted and saturated but just to have a like like motown and stacks records and you know there's a grit to those records um which with computer you know recording on with a computer like it's everything's just super clean so um yeah, I have to go to great lengths to kind of break things a little bit just to, to get them to sound uh, more exciting and more, um, I don't know, to have a, have a sound to it, a little edge. Yeah, no, I, I get it. It's, it. And the thing, the thing that I find also with writing songs is each one is different. You know, you always want to feel like, okay, I broke, I've cracked the code now, and but it's always different every single time. Like it's a... Uh, just like every day is different than the day before. So it's always going to be uh, a matter of just keeping an open mind and trusting, trusting your taste, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So last question. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about your studio in Austin because uh, before I ran into you uh, recently in LA, I didn't even know that you'd moved to Austin. And um, just tell me a little bit about your studio, if there's anything that you particularly love that's in it is it different in, from your la studio in any way just yeah so it's it's the i still have my la studio it's it's a it's nearly identical to my la studio um dimensionally and i had the same studio designer design it um george oxberger who's brilliant he's designed some of the most iconic studios in los angeles and you know um, a lot of studios that i've worked in over the years um and so he he did he designed my la studio and then when we were doing the austin thing i i hit him up again and say hey would you be down to do my austin studio and so we basically designed it to where i could go back and forth and there would not be any adjusting to my ears needing to be done. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. So it's, it's cool. So, and it's funny cause, um, I'm not in my studio now, but, um, you know, back, like back when we were doing zooms every day during the pandemic, the, the view behind me looked a certain way. And so people got to, you know, they'd see I'm in my studio. I have like a, there's a big diffuser in the back of the, of the room. And, um, and then when we moved, to Austin, there's still a big diffuser in there. Like it looks exactly the same. So no one really knew that I'd moved. No one, you know. That's amazing. Wow. The view the same. But it's um yeah, I mean it's all my gear. I mean uh, to be honest, a lot of it is the same gear when we when I worked with you on um that Brazzaville track, I have a lot of that same gear that I still use, you know. Um I still use a lot of my outboard um all my crazy f- delays reverbs distortion units i've got tons of pedals um with production i use a lot of pedals when i'm producing i'll run audio pedals what do you use pedals on just quickly everything everything literally yeah okay um, which what which pedals for example not maybe not specific pedals but what kind of pedals um, or specific if you want I mean the uh what's a good one um i mean there's this the broadcast pedal is really cool um it's kind of it's kind of a weird overdrive 
pedal. What would it's you use that on typically? Everything. everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's it's great because it has a wide range. You know, you can you can do a lot with it, but it's it's like a grit kind of pedal. So you can do like subtle grit to full out fuzz. Um, but but yeah, I'd, I'd use it. I mean, guitar mainly guitar, but it's it's awesome on keyboards, synths, and bass and drums. You know, um, I use a Memory Man a lot. I've got a an older Memory Man that gets used quite a bit uh, in a number of ways. Um, I mean, so much Sans Amp I use all the time on bass. Sure. I always track Sans Amp with bass as a parallel. Um, so I always do DI, the amp, and then a third line, which will be Sans Amp, and sometimes a fourth line, which would be a Big Muff. Very cool. Well, but yeah, Tony. Possibly, yeah. Such a pleasure. It's always yeah. a pleasure to talk to you. Likewise, yeah. Uh, are you, by chance, going to be at AES this year? Uh, probably not. Probably not this year. But you never know. I'll, I'll, you'll be there. I think I'll be there. Yeah. Let me know if you're going to be there or, yeah. Anyway, yeah. I hope our paths cross again, cross again soon. I'm sure they will. And, um, yeah, man, always a pleasure. Thanks for doing this. Likewise. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks. All right. Talk to you soon. Cool. See it. 